welcome to Public Historians at Work, a podcast of the Center for Public History at the University of Houston. We are busily working on season two of this series, devoted to the intersection of public history and health. In the meantime, please enjoy this special episode. You might not think of a night in jail as a nice time, but for public anthropologist Dr. Alexandra Arkhipova, her arrest in Russia in 2017 was both an opportunity for research and part of a long-standing tradition for public scholars within her country. In her interview with Dr. Alexei Golubev, recorded on March 23, 2022, Dr. Arkhipova discusses the difficult work of collecting and preserving information under the oppressive regimes of the Soviet Union and Putin's modern-day Russia. A self-described anthropologist of crisis, Dr. Arkhipova uses social media to crowdsource for people's memories and eyewitness accounts of protest against the authoritarian government and the current war in Ukraine. She talks about how this work of gathering and archiving people's diverse experiences becomes its own form of protest against governmental censorship and attempted control of the historical record. Let's listen in. Dr. Arkhipova, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and please call me Sasha. Definitely. Could you please tell us a couple of words about your academic trajectories? I was trained as a philologist, and I studied jokes and anecdotes, and I wrote a PhD thesis about it, and then I started to research many other things, from traditional ethnographic field to like contemporary folklore, and especially political folklore, and especially socialistic folklore in different countries, including jokes about Fidel Castro in contemporary Cuba. And also I studied urban legends, contemporary legends, back in the, in, in the Soviet Union, and which what functions they have. And also I study the contemporary rumors now, rumors of the wartime in Russia. You recently co-authored a book about urban legends in, in the Soviet Union, and it came out in 2020, right? Yep. And I find your work that it can be characterized as exemplary public history. You deal with those parts of historical experience that had been previously neglected. You deal with, you know, ways of gathering historical information through oral history, through questionnaires, through, you know, communication on social networks. And your resulting monograph is very accessible, right? It is a scholarly monograph, but at the same time, it had a very broad audience at home in Russia. So can you please tell a couple of words about your experience with this project? Well, you know that like everybody knows about urban legends and rumors during the Soviet time, and people uh, lead their lives under the experience of these rumors. Because for many years, Russian was searching for the truth in these rumors, not in the official information. And the point is that because of such situation, nobody was thinking about researching this object. And when uh, I and my colleague Anna Kirziuk, we start to write about it, we start to collect information. And here is uh, how public history 
comes in because how we collect this information, we start to ask people using social media like Facebook to share their memories with us and we try to find informants, whatever we can, and people starting to share their memories with us and then they started to collect the information by themselves. So they uh, they start to ask their relatives, their neighbors about uh, rumors on bar legends and Soviet experience. And that's how we collect a huge database of such urban legends and rumors. And how that's how we wrote our book. Did you also work in the archives of, or was it primarily based on oral testimonies? No, no, no. Also, we use archives and very specific uh, archives like archives of KGB from Ukraine, where, where these archives were open for public, not like back in Russia. So you can just come before the war, you can come in Kiev or Odessa, and all these archives are open to public, so you can find any information you want. And this KGB archive was very, very good for this type of research, because as you may know, KGB officers, they tried to record any piece of information about public opinion, so they were literally collecting rumors. I saw the instructions for political police officers back from the end of 1920s, when uh, they should research the rumors and jokes in villages and cities. They should ask which rumors and jokes do you recently hear, who is spreading them, what the background of the person who is spreading them. These instructions, it scared me a lot, literally, it's the same instruction how we used during our interview. So your recently published book is a good example how public anthropology and public history are really not that far from each other. We use similar methods, right? So I have done a lot of oral history, for example, and you go to the archives and again, Work on political jokes or urban legends is something that both historians and anthropologists can do. Maybe you could use your current project in anthropology of crisis in order to tell us about it. Yeah, I should mention that the last, I don't know, 10 years, my first primary occupation is anthropology of crisis. So I basically collect texts, narratives, and I don't know, uh, ritual, movements, whatever, how people react to social and political changes. And I called it anthropology of crisis because, well, <laughs> basically in Russia we're always living in crisis. And I and colleagues of mine, we're just sort of informal research group, we collect information during big oppositional rallies. We are making polls and surveys uh, during rallies, asking participants of rallies. And also we uh, make interviews with them and we collect database of slogans and we do whatever we can to research these and to collect these materials. Because some, somehow, someday, researchers will need these and then we, they can use our database. 
And that's how during these terrible times, dark times, I start ask people to send me whatever they can see in the on the streets of their own um, place, their own city, and graffiti which they can see on walls and what their neighbors told them. And you're using social media, and in particular, you're using that new app that appeared quite recently, but immediately became popular among people on the protest side of the political spectrum, the app called The Telegram. Can you tell how you created this channel that you have on Telegram, how it became popular, and how, by the very nature of having this channel, you are able to get information, anthropological information, that will one day become historical information, that no other scholars have been able to do? Well, I start this channel in Telegram because Telegram has a reputation that it's like social media, which is like unseen by Russian intelligence and it's untraceable. I don't know if it's really so, but because of that, many people, they don't so scared when they use Telegram. And I started this channel, this project, because I, I saw that maybe I would, I, would, I would love to talk about some nice things about anthropology in general, history of anthropology, some nice stories, and so on. But now it's turned out to be a huge project. I really collect information about what's going on in different cities. I ask my readers, now I have more than uh, 20,000 of them, and they, they are immediately writing me what is going on. And they send pictures to me, and I, I ask only for pictures which can be verified. So I, you should see uh, this graffiti by yourself, for example, and then I put this information in a very special database. To keep it. And you mentioned that some of the subscribers of your channel on Telegram, they become your de facto collaborators. Yeah. And then I found out that what happens two years ago, many people, they really want to help me to collect information. And not just because they want to collect information in general, but somehow for them, this is a way of protest. Because it's uh, now and a year ago and two years ago, it was absolutely difficult, if not impossible, to uh, protest directly on the streets because easily you can be arrested for that. So people look at this project like a protest B, not like protest A when you're going directly on the streets, but a protest B. You just collect information. It's like a passive way of protest. People start to ask me how they can help me. And in several cities, people start to organize a small like research team. And they are asking me for instructions. And then they, during big oppositional rallies, and between them, they start to collect information about, what going, about what's going on, what people thought, are they, are they making interviews, making pictures, and so on. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, you got a wealth of this very important anthropological information, are you going to deposit it at some point? So is it going to become a part of an archive? Yeah, and we deposit this in Bremen in Germany. And yes, it's going directly into archive there. So what advice can you give us about the use of 
Telegram or Facebook or any other forms of social media for historical information? And what do you think are the pitfalls and how to avoid them? Let me tell you a story. Once I interviewed two girls, well, not girls, women. They are twins. They both grown up in a small Russian city and they live uh, with their mom and dad here and they will stay in, in the same period in this city. And then I was asking them how was the shortage of food in this period. I was talking about the end of 19th in this city and it was a terrible period in the history of Russia, the end, the collapse of the Soviet Union, etc., etc. So both girls were 14 that time. And one of them, one of these twins told me, oh, I remember this terrible situation. You need, you need to stay in the huge line to get food. You need to have coupons. It's a special coupons to get any, uh, any type of food. And the uh, second girl, uh, her sister told me, really? I don't remember any lines. I don't remember any coupons. Yes, there were some problems with food, but we are not staying in line. And then she told her sister, you are lying to me. So, see, there were twins. Uh, they were living in the same family. They were both in, the, in that year in, in this city. And one of them was remembering everything was what was going on. And the second sister, she didn't remember anything. After a while, I really had a very long conversation with them. I understood that the first girl, uh, she was like very quiet. She loves her mom a lot. So she was helping her and also was staying in these lines for food and taking coupons and going to shops. And the second girl, she was very talented. So, so she was busy with uh, her exams. She was thinking about entering a good college so literally he was too much occupied by her own fate and her own task so now she just really don't remember what was going on that year so why i told you this long story because Every time when you ask people about some sort of uh, testimony or some uh, sharing, some sort of memory, very often you got absolutely different memory or different testimony about the same object. It happens all the time. It's uh, our task to collect all these testimonies and be prepared that these testimonies should, can be and they uh, always are very controversial. It's been almost a month since the Putin's invasion of Ukraine, and you had to leave Russia. How has this experience changed your understanding of what you are doing, how you are doing it, and why you are doing it? The situation is quite terrible. Well, not even quite, it's terrible. But uh, what we can do is to collect information and somehow it helps people to survive in this terrible situation. So, again, I ask people to send me any testimonies which they can find about what's going on. I ask them to send me graffitis, slogans which people are prepared for anti-war anti resistance. 
any sign of anti-war resistance in general. Also, rumors, jokes, and uh, whatever people are sharing with each other. As a result, I got a lot of such information. And of course, people may ask, literally, you are living in a sort of very comfortable bubble. And you're collecting only information from inside this bubble. And of course, your bubble is, can be very big, but still is a one bubble. So what you can do with this? Yes, it's a very typical question and somehow it's very it's a very fair question about my own bubble. What uh, I can do with it? And the only solution I can find is not to stop collecting information, information inside my Bible, but to find people in other Bibles. That's why I ask people to ask their relatives especially if these relatives are okay with Russian uh, Russians' invasion to Ukraine. So to, to listen to the other point of view, even if this point of view is quite terrible. And also, I using not only such uh, quality way of collecting uh, su- such information, but quantitative. I have uh, access to several social media analyzers, such as Mediologia and Brand Analytics. So uh, these are programs which are collecting information in social media, not in messengers, but in open social media. So I can, literally, I can count how many people post any information online. And then I can measure if, for example, these text, this urban legend, this rumor, this joke, this uh, picture is popular or not so popular. It helped me to deal with the information I'm getting inside my own bubble. The channel that you have on Telegram, and this brings us to an important question that we briefly discussed before the beginning of the podcast. What makes public history public history and what makes public anthropology public anthropology? And we decided that it's not just about how we collect and gather our information, but it is also about how we present our information, how we communicate our knowledge. Public history is public history not because not just because we collect oral histories or other discarded testimonies, but because we are looking for ways of communicating the history in different ways, not just in scholarly journals, not just in scholarly monographs, but a broad variety of media. In your case, your channel in Telegram is that way for you to communicate your public anthropology, right? My channel on Telegram called Serious Anthropology, Nezanimatelna Anthropologia in Russian. And when I first uh, wrote a post in this channel, it was, I guess, three years ago, maybe four years ago, I thought that it will be like a type of popular science channel as many in Russia. And I will talk about different researches, different approaches, interesting books and and so but the more i was writing in in this channel the more i found that what uh, people really interesting is not the books of other people but uh, about my own research and how th- can they contribute to my own research 
and how can I explain what is going on now? And I start to find out that the more I'm writing about current events and I give an anthropological comments about current situations, the more popular I'm becoming. And then I start to invite other people uh, to help me with gathering information. Uh, and I just was asking, for example, today I, I saw this gra graffiti on the wall. It's a unique example. Or you can see another example, uh, example in other pictures and other examples of this type of protest in different cities. And then I start getting answers. So in this way, your channel serves both for you to gather information and for you to communicate information. And then the way you communicate information, it triggers people's interests and people's responses so that you can get even more information on your research. Yes, it's true. And also I can call it a participatory research. You know, there is a term, I think it was created by Henry Jenkins, participatory culture. It's a culture when uh, readers can, uh, for example, readers of a book can become so others of the book. They uh, can help to create this book. They can change the ending of the book and so on. And this is participatory anthropology because somehow people who are listening to me, people who are reading my post, they can contribute to my research and they can influence on my research because I can and I was several times I was changing the plot of my research because of what people were sending me in the last moment. So that does sound very close to what public historians deal with on a regular basis. I have another question for you, and that again relates to your expertise in doing anthropology under a repressive regime. You mentioned that police came several times after you. Can you tell us about that experience? Well, now it's like a common situation in Russia, uh, like all of my colleagues, many of my colleagues and all of almost all of my friends, uh, they were sitting in police vans called Aftazak or in some sort of prison for some time. It's well, uh, police were coming for me, but they were not coming for me uh, like for an anthropologist. They were coming for me because my face is in uh, in the database of the among other people who were visiting rallies uh, many times, and I was arrested once in 2017. So I spent a nice, very nice time in police van. I am not talking about this ironically. Really, it was a very nice time. It was. Scary but nice because I met a lot of nice people there and we were talking and talking and talking together, sitting in this police van and then at the police station a uh, whole night and plus one day. And then I met a lot of people who later became friends. And also I managed to make an interview with uh, with policemen who arrested us and. That's a unique situation, because how else I can interview this guy? Yeah, this is not an experience I urge the listeners to emulate, that's for sure. 
Yes, but you know, in the beginning of the Soviet times, in 1920, many historians, philologists, anthropologists, ethnographers, and folklorists, they were sitting in prison and they were making notes while sitting in prison. So it's not, it's a very scary tradition, but a tradition in Russia. Sasha, can you say a few words about the ethical side of your research? Because you work under a repressive and authoritarian regime, many of your informants are in potential danger or risk because of your collaboration. And then, of course, you as a scholar yourself is at risk to the degree that you had to leave Russia recently. Yes, and this is a big problem because, you know, now in Russia we have a special police force task called anti-extremism task force and literally it's a political police. So under these cute, or maybe not very cute, uh, nicknames, uh, what they really do, they are political police. They are searching uh, social media for a post who contains any grain of extremism, terrorism, or any sign of uh, protest. And so there is a policeman who is sitting in the nice office in front of his computer, and he is searching social media using much more stronger instruments than I do. And so they can see uh, people uh, posting in Facebook and also in Russian national uh, social media. And this is one of the reasons why Facebook and Instagram were recently blocked in Russia. Because previously, if somebody wrote a post in Facebook, he was he or she was safe. Uh, mostly because for a trial you need a personal data about this person who wrote this post. But Facebook and Instagram, they were not going to cooperate with Russian political police, so they will not give this information to political police. Not like national social media, like uh, contact and classmates. So these guys uh, in this political police task force they can do whatever they want with these posts. And of course, if I publish some information, they can see it like a hint. Oh, there is a new way of protest. Let us look closer to this. It's a risk, and I should remember about it all the time. What can I do about it? That's how I have my own sense of self-censorship. I'm not publishing a bigger part of my research because of these political police. And sometimes I'm just changing a little bit of pieces of information. For example, a guy called Peter told me that in Novosibirsk, people were protesting with these graffiti or slogans and whatever. So I changed Peter to Yelena. Moscaline to feminine, and also I'm saying that they were protesting maybe not in Novosibirsk, but uh, any other city. So I am trying to protect people. That's why I forced to make a sort of fabricate in my papers and in my uh, publications online. But then I'm saying that the names are, are false and the name of city also false. 
Yeah, I think this story is fascinating in the sense that it shows how both scholars and police are interested in the same posts and in the same information. And that gives us an insight into the social importance of what public historians or you as a public anthropologist are doing, right? Yeah, it's true, because the other solution is to keep silence. But I'm not sure that keeping silence is going to help somebody, no. So, Sasha, an important aspect of your research is the fact that there is real censorship in Russia these days. And so people have to be very mindful of what they speak and what context they speak, for what audiences they speak. How does it affect your research? Yes, since March 4th, we have a new, two new laws about fake news about Russian army. In reality, it means that any anti-war post, any mentioning of protest and any sign of support of Ukraine can be punished and punished severe from a huge fine to 15 years in prison. And even if you're staying sign of anti-war protest, like like a text uh, on the snow, no war or on the walls or uh, just you put uh, these two words on your code. Uh, In all these cases, people were punished for that. And there is a huge struggle against this uh, sort of censorship. And this struggle means that people are trying to say uh, the word war loudly. So they try to remind people around that you need to admit that Russia started the war against Ukraine. So there is a lot of such uh, graffiti on the streets of the world, uh, on the streets. And uh, Russian Russian authorities, local authorities, they try to delete this graffiti as fast as possible. And people are trying to make make pictures of them as as fast as possible. And also because uh, Russian local authorities they're trying to delete uh, the direct sign of protest. So the direct mentioning the word uh, war. So people are trying to hide this information and they're trying to use a sort of coded language. For example, the simplest way is to put that of phrase no war, which in Russia is three, do- three letters and then five letters. People are staying just the first three asterisks then uh, five asterisks, or three dots and then five dots. Or, for example, they are putting on the walls of uh, different cities a very small picture of five dancers or five small swan. This is a reference to the very popular Russian ballet, Swan Lake. And a Swan Lake in the late Soviet times, it was a sign of the death of a new of the old head of Russian government, like Brezhnev, for example. So this mentioning of Swan Lake is a sign that you you wish Putin be dead. So this is type of coded language which you can find anywhere. And people are trying to protest anyway. And if they cannot put sign uh, saying no war, they are leaving just these three and five dots instead. Before we finish, is there any last advice that you would 
like to give to public historians either aspiring or practicing? Well, um, you know, there is a lot of interesting objects to research. Uh, but in many cases, before uh, to research something, you really need to find something. And in these terrible dark times, when uh, there is a war, which I thought, as many others, never going to happen, uh, we need to collect information of the, uh, and co- to collect uh, the narratives of the wartime. And so I can, I my advice to public historians, young public historians, not forget to collect information that they can see around them. Because people very often, they research something in the past or in the present. But very often they forget that there is a lot of such objects objects around you. And you need to, cal- to research not only one object, but uh, many of them just to compare and to understand if it's a minority opinion or it's just a majority opinion, uh, opinion of majority. So especially from those people who somehow silenced because, for example, back to the Soviet history, we know a lot about life in the Soviet Union from people who were educated, who live in big cities, who uh, left diaries and memoirs and so on. But we know f- very few examples back from, I don't know, Russian Russian uh, peasants, from uh, countryside who who never... Uh, wrote anything in their life, uh, and they jo- then don't left any memoirs. So, and now our knowledge about their life is quite limited. So, what public historians can do now is to collect information as much as possible, not from uh, like top information from top speakers, but from those who are not talking publicly in these times. And as we mentioned, public history is not just about how you gather information, but also how you communicate information, right? So where can we find how you communicate information in English? You published a lot in Russian and you have that perfect public history book. What about English? For those who would like to read about Russian jokes about Donald Trump and Putin, you can find our recent paper published in the journal of American Folklore about Russian jokes on Donald Trump and why Russian people were joking about Donald Trump a lot. And if you're interested in quite a more serious matter, maybe you would, li- would like to find my recent podcast about these new laws about fake news and how Russian police use these accusations in spreading fake news against people. This podcast was made by Wilson Center and you can find it on their website. Thank you for your time, Sasha. And thank you all for your listening and cooperation. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Public Historians at Work. You can show your support for this podcast and the Center for Public History through a donation at giving.uh.edu slash public history. For more information about the diverse work of the Center for Public History, 
Find us online at uh.edu slash class slash cph, or on Facebook and Twitter at UHCP History. Remember, we are all keepers of our history.